Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Damania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med-ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our case. In today's episode, we're bringing together some of the best content from our previous podcast to present a comprehensive clinical case. We're also really excited to share with you some of the most highly cited articles from the past year presented in a practical case-based format. This episode will offer you valuable insights into the latest research findings, while we also highlight the real-world application of this knowledge in a clinical setting through our case. We'll start by presenting an interesting case of a toddler who was transferred to the PQ due to increasing respiratory distress. A two-year-old male was brought to the emergency department with a chief complaint of increased work of breathing and upper respiratory symptoms. The patient had cough and runny nose, and otherwise, the patient has had no significant past medical history, not taking any medications, and has no known allergies. The child was up to date on immunizations, and there were no significant sick contacts. The family brought the child to the emergency department after noticing a significant increase in work of breathing, including the use of accessory muscles, nasal flaring, and chest retractions. The initial physical exam revealed tachypnea and decreased breath sounds on the right side. The child's vital signs were concerning for respiratory distress with a heart rate of 170 beats per minute, respiratory rate of 50, and oxygen saturation low at 85% on room air. Chest x-ray revealed right lower lobe pneumonia. The child was started on supplemental oxygen, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and trialed with albuterol. Despite initial treatment, the child's respiratory distress worsened, and the decision was made to transfer the child to the pediatric ICU and place the child on high-flonasal cannula at one and a half liters per kilo. Upon admission to the PICU, the child's vital signs were still very concerning. He was afebrile with a heart rate of 180 beats per minute. He was tachypnic with a respiratory rate of 60 breaths per minute. And oxygen saturation continued to be 85% on one and a half liters per kilo of high flow nasal cannula at 75% FiO2. Given the persistent respiratory distress, the decision was made to intubate the child in the pediatric ICU for acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Shortly after intubation, a central line is placed in the right internal jugular vein. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, we have a two-year-old with a prodrome of URI symptoms who is otherwise previously healthy with no significant medical history or allergies, develop respiratory distress and diagnosed with pneumonia, and then transferred to the PQ and subsequently intubated for respiratory failure. So let's fast forward in the case and talk about a scenario that frequently arises in the PQ. It's hospital day two and patient's RSV swab is positive and we are seeing some improvement on the chest x-ray. Blood culture from the outside hospital has continued to be negative. The patient on hospital day two has developed a fever of 38.5 degrees Celsius and the nurse needs to check with the pediatric resident whether a blood culture needs to be done and whether it needs to come from the central line or a peripheral stick. 
Let's dive deep into the literature on this specific topic, fever and a central line. Absolutely, Pradeep. So, you know, taking a step back, this is a very common clinical scenario seen in the PICU. The question is often raised as to what point do we need to grab a blood culture in a PICU patient who is febrile with the central line? And I would really stratify the thought process by assessing whether or not the patient is immunocompetent versus immunocompromised, as well as if the patient is hemodynamically stable or not. And I also think that as pediatric intensivists, it is very important to reduce unnecessary cultures. And this is very supported by a recent study that was a fascinating study by Woods Hill et al. in JAMA Pediatrics published this past year, which explored blood culture practices in the pediatric ICU before and after implementing a local quality improvement program. The program led to a 33% reduction in blood culture rates and a 13% decrease in broad-spectrum antibiotic use. It also had about a 10% drop in initiating new antibiotics. It was found that the CLABSI rates showed a 33% relative reduction. What's noteworthy is that there was no change in mortality, length of stay, readmission, or sepsis rates. So I think it's essential to keep in mind the benefits of reducing unnecessary cultures. And there are many centers out there that are exploring this. So what is the relevance of this study to a general PQ practice? So this study shows that there are ways to reduce blood culture and antibiotic use in the PQ. And it's crucial to do so because blood culture contamination can lead to all sorts of problems like increased costs, longer hospital stays, and a higher likelihood of antibiotic resistance. But there are solutions. For instance, a study published in Pediatrics by Fegali et al. found that standardizing blood culture collection methods, optimizing blood volume, creating checklists, and reinforcing nurse education could significantly reduce blood culture contamination rates. Absolutely, Pradeep. So, you know, in our index case, the patient is an immunocompetent host on antibiotics for pneumonia and has an RSV infection with a low-grade fever. Given the circumstances, we can reasonably monitor the patient without additional blood cultures or workup at this time. However, we still need to be vigilant and keep an eye out for any changes in the fever curve, any hemodynamic instability, or laboratory data indicating rising white blood cell count, CRP, or procalcitonin. If any of these indicators start to worsen, then it's reasonable to obtain cultures both centrally and peripherally. We also need to check the site of the central venous line and look out for any local signs of skin or soft tissue infection. At present, there were no signs of local infection at the CVL insertion site in this patient, or there were no symptoms suggestive of sepsis or septic shock. This makes it very reasonable to forego blood cultures in this case. So let's go ahead and just switch gears for a moment and integrate a little bit about septic shock. You know, the most recent surviving sepsis guidelines define it as a severe infection that causes cardiovascular dysfunction, including hypotension, the need for treatment with the vasoactive medication, or impaired perfusion. In children, sepsis-associated organ dysfunction is also considered a form of septic shock, which involves severe infection leading to cardiovascular dysfunction, as well as other organ dysfunction. It's crucial to note 
that diagnosing sepsis requires clinical judgment and decision making. There's no single test, biomarker, or decision rules that can perfectly differentiate serious bacterial infections. And while blood cultures remain the gold standard for diagnosing sepsis resulting from bloodstream infections in children, they are often overused in practice, especially in the context of central lines. Absolutely, Pradeep. Now, I think we need to be mindful of the risks and benefits of taking blood cultures from our patients, particularly in the PICU. You know, as we've seen in previous studies, implementing multidisciplinary diagnostic stewardship interventions and standardizing blood culture collection methods can help reduce blood culture contamination rates and unnecessary antibiotic use. Ultimately, I think it's up to us as pediatric intensivists to use our clinical judgment and balance the need for diagnostic testing with the potential risks and benefits for our patients. In fact, there have been centers such as those from Johns Hopkins who have created a collaborative known as Bright Star Collaborative that has aimed to reduce the respiratory cultures as well as the blood culture overuse. Okay, Pradeep, so let's imagine our patient had not quite this dramatic of a presentation of hypoxemic respiratory failure and presented with respiratory distress due to RSV bronchiolitis and placed initially on one liter per kilo high flow nasal cannula at 40% FiO2. Now the team comes to a decision whether or not we need to switch to CPAP or RAM. So given this case, do you mind just discussing the current literature on this decision? Absolutely, Rahul. There was a randomized control trial published in JAMA in 2022 by Ram Narayan and colleagues that looked at whether first-line use of high-flow nasal cannula was non-inferior to CPAP for time to liberation from all forms of respiratory support. They had 600 children receive either high-flow nasal cannula or CPAP at a pressure of 7 to 8 centimeters of water, and they measured the primary outcome which was the time from randomization to liberation from respiratory support. The study found that there was no difference in mortality, rate of intubation, or use of sedation between the two groups. The authors also reported that the medium time to liberation from respiratory support was slightly longer in the high-flow nasal cannula group compared to the CPAP group, but that this difference was not statistically significant. So based on the study, we can say with confidence that high-flow nasal cannula can be safely continued in our patient unless there are other red flag signs. At this time, there's no need to switch to CPAP or RAM. Now, these decisions are highly case-specific for our patients, but it's always helpful to have these studies to guide our decisions and provide us more information to help us manage our patients effectively. So Pradeep, at our institution, we have a step-down ICU model, and let's say that this patient who's currently on one liter per kilo high-flow nasal cannula, 40% FiO2, was kept in the step-down unit. Are there some data-driven tools which can help us identify early deterioration and need for transfer to our main pediatric ICU? That's a great question. So when it comes to detecting which patients are at risk for deterioration and need to transfer to the main PQ, we have a few tools at our disposal. One of the most commonly used tool is the Pediatric Early Warning Score, or PUSE system, which relies on viral signs and patient assessment to identify early signs of patient deterioration. This score can predict 
patient deterioration six to eight hours prior to a code event. Each vital sign or patient assessment is assigned points, resulting in a score from zero to six, with a higher score or a trend of increasing score indicating a higher risk for deterioration. Pews of three to four suggest intermediate risk, meaning it is recommended to alert child nurse and staff MD. Several studies have validated the Pew score, including one by Duncan et al., which found an area under the receiver operating characteristic curve of 0.90 with 78% sensitivity and 95% specificity at a score of 5. Yes, I remember classically using this score to trigger a rapid response where you have a comprehensive assessment from the ICU team as well as the floor team. Now, Pradeep, in this age of AI, are there other models that are out there? Yes. uh, Very recently, researchers have started using automated clinical prediction models in electronic health records. Mayam Purat and colleagues published an article in a pediatric critical care medicine journal that used an automated vital sign-based model to predict clinical deterioration in hospitalized children. They found that vital sign model outperformed the modified bedside pews in predicting ICU's transfers at 12 and 24 hours before transfer and outperformed bedside pews in predicting critical deterioration events at multiple time points from 6 to 24 hours before transfer. In busy healthcare settings, healthcare providers may become desensitized to the constant beeping and ringing of alarms from multiple monitors. This can result in decreased capture of vital signs as clinicians may turn off alarms or avoid continuous monitoring to reduce the noise level. However, decreased vital sign capture can impact the accuracy of these models, potentially leading to delayed recognition and intervention of early warning signs of patient deterioration. That's a great point, Pradeep, and thanks so much for highlighting the pros and cons of these clinical prediction models. So in summary, to determine which patients on the floor require transfer to the PICU, we need to use a combination of bedside clinical assessment skills, vital sign-based early warning scores, and even incorporate newer clinical prediction models. I think ultimately, we also need to rely on our gut feeling and have a group decision-making model. Rahul, as we wrap up this episode, I want to shift gears a bit and discuss a crucial aspect of patient care that often goes overlooked, social determinants and needs. How can we effectively screen our patients and their families for these factors, and what resources can we provide to address these issues? Absolutely, Pradeep. This is such a crucial topic, and I think it's important because we really want to take care of our patients holistically. One study by Maholtz and colleagues published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine this past year looked at how we can screen for social needs in critically ill patients. They surveyed parents using the 2020 Social Determinants of Health domains and found that 60% of participants had at least one unmet social need, and about a third of those requested assistance. The most commonly identified needs were difficulties with utilities and living costs, housing instability, adjusting to the hospitalization, as well as even food insecurity. Interestingly, 73% of the parents screened appreciated the screening during their child's 
PQ admission. This suggests that children, especially those in areas with high child poverty rates, like the county studied in the research study that you just mentioned, are at significant risk for exposure to negative social influences on health. The most common interventions needed and were providing meal tickets or gas fuel cards for urgent needs or connecting our families with community resources for non-urgent needs. Overall, screening for social determinants of health is an important aspect of caring for critically ill children and their families. Absolutely, Pradeep. And I think it's important for pediatric intensivists to not only focus on a patient's medical needs, but also, like we mentioned, the social determinants of health. As research has shown that poverty is linked to increased utilization of critical care resources as well as morbidity, I think we must develop an effective process to screen social needs of patients admitted to the pediatric ICO. And just as a practical point, this is where early consultation with social work comes in. You know, by collaborating with social workers early on, we can identify and address social needs such as housing instability, food insecurity, and difficulties with utilities and living costs like we mentioned. I think it is so key that we work with our patients and their families to move towards a more comprehensive pediatric healthcare model. Rahul, can you summarize some of the key takeaways from the articles we spoke about today? Absolutely, Pradeep. I have three main points. The first point, having an algorithmic approach to fever and central lines in the PICU is crucial. It is crucial to consider post-status, the underlying reason why the patient is intubated, time period between the illness and the fever, any signs of instability, and even take into account labs alluding to a new infection. Having an institutional approach can reduce unnecessary cultures and also prevent central line-associated bloodstream infections. We also spoke today about high-flow nasal cannula being non-inferior to CPAP in the setting of bronchiolitis. It is absolutely essential that we continue to reevaluate physiologic parameters once patients are started on non-invasive support and have a shared mental model on when to escalate. Speaking about escalation, finally, we spoke about the Pew scoring system, and in the age of chat GPT and artificial intelligence, new predictive models are going to be integrated into the critical care setting. This is such exciting stuff. It's clear we need to take a more personalized approach in the light of the new data and tools we discussed today, and this means considering both objective data and our own clinical judgment. We have to remember that, you know, every patient is unique with their own set of circumstances and needs, and we need to be able to adapt our care to meet those individual requirements. You taught me in fellowship, Pradeep, identify, intervene, and reevaluate. This concludes our Integrated Journal Club episode. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as the Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kumath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.